Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights brought to you by 11FS. I'm Sarah Kachansky. Today we want to talk about SCA, or Strong Customer Authentication, a regulatory requirement that will be introduced in Europe on the 14th of September this year. The rules would apply to online payments within the European Economic Area, or the EEA, where the cardholder's bank and the business's payment provider are both in the EEA. Some businesses outside of Europe may also be impacted, depending on how European issuers implement the new authentication rules. SCA requires that businesses use two independent authentication elements to verify payments. Transactions that don't meet these new authentication requirements or qualify, or qualify for any exemption may be declined from the 14th of September onwards. Uh, this is one of the less well understood parts of PSD2, we think, um, that is yet to come into play, but it could have some big consequences for customers, for retailers, for payment service providers. So we wanted to have a bit of a dig into it. Um, I am by no means an expert on this, but I am joined by some industry experts to help us drill down. So joining me are uh, Nelixa Devlukia, Head of Regulatory Open Banking. How are you today, Nelixa? I'm very well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. Um, Olivier Godmont, Product Manager at Stripe. How are you today? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're more than welcome. Uh, Daniel Chatfield, engineer at Monzo. How are you today, Daniel? Good, thank you. And Fred Liu, VP of Identity and Risk Products at Visa. How are you? Great, thanks for having me. I should point out we're all a little bit damp because there was just a <laughs> cyclone outside in Devonshire Square. Um, but we're going to put that to one side and we're going to get on with the show. So to kick us off, what's driven this? What, why, why are we having SCA? What's, what's behind it? What's the intention of it? Who wants to go first? I think overall, the regulators wanted to do two things. Um, they wanted to get fraud levels down, which I think everyone would agree is a good goal. Um, and they also wanted to foster innovation. So setting up some rules where different parties within the ecosystem had to do certain things, uh, but leave enough ambiguity in there so that people can innovate and build new technologies. So I think you have to put the European regulation in perspective. So fraud is really the plague of e-commerce. Like fraud is essentially undermines trust and trust uh, is necessary for e-commerce. And for regulators, the authentication mandate is an easy stick in order to regulate fraud. And so we've seen, for instance, India introduced similar requirements in 2014, essentially mandating like all debit cards to be authenticated online. Europe is coming this year. Australia may be coming next year. So it's really a global deep trend of regulators being interested by the authentication topic. I think that's absolutely right. Um, the industry loses billions of pounds a year to fraud and in particular card not present fraud. And obviously FCA is uh, implemented to address that problem of a customer being able to authenticate themselves in order to mitigate that risk of card not present fraud. So card not present fraud, that would be when you're trying to buy something on your phone or online yes, or online. even actually over the telephone call, I imagine, as well. Or how do you get around? That's an interesting one, actually. I hadn't even thought about that until I just said it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how you do that. Uh, um, those phone transactions are actually out of scope, so they don't have SCA requirements. Oh, well, that is interesting. I'm mm -hmm. glad I mentioned it. <laughs> um, so who is responsible for this then? It sounds like everybody is sort of on board with the idea it probably is a good thing, but who actually has to make this happen? Yeah, ultimately, it's the payment service provider. So it's going to be your bank that gives you your card and then the acquirer, who is the financial institution that supports your merchant. Ultimately, those are the ones who have the responsibility under the regulation for making sure it's done correctly. And how do we decide what correctly is? I'm sure Monzo <laughs> has some ideas on this. I'm sure you all have some ideas on this. But but Daniel, do you want to go first? Yeah, the, the regulation is quite nice in that it's quite open and flexible, um, which is good because it gives you freedom to really kind of uh, innovate and kind of the approach that we're going to take 
we're quite fortunate. All of our customers have a mobile app. Um, we only have effectively one channel for most things uh, using kind of the terminal that most banks use. So for us, the kind of strong customer authentication project is is quite simple. Um, other financial institutions have a much harder job to go and uh, kind of redo a whole bunch of their, their different um, stuff. So for us, it will be not too dissimilar to the approach we take today. So we, we already apply strong customer authentication to the vast majority of payments that um, we process. Some exemptions, um, the way that we've applied them in the absence of regulation is slightly different to how the, the legislation writes it, but we don't expect the impact on our customers to be uh, too noticeable. Um, broadly speaking, you want to do a payment, um, you'll get a push notification asking to approve the payment, you'll enter a PIN into your phone, uh, and then the payment will go through. Is the, is the PIN a new element there, actually? Or can you use fingerprint? Uh, PIN or fingerprint, right. yes. I was just thinking, I have Monzo, and I was thinking, oh, I don't think I've ever entered a PIN, is that new? But yes, okay, so so that is the two factor. It comes to me, I go, yes, I approve this transaction in whichever secure method I have decided, or so I can choose PIN or fingerprint. Yeah, so um, a combination of your trusted device uh, and either PIN or fingerprint um, as the second factor. Okay. So I think it's really interesting that you've just said that it's there and it's allowing innovation because to date, often the conversation in industry is that SA is too rigid, it doesn't allow innovation. So I think it'd be really useful to actually think about and explore that topic a little bit more because that's good news if it allows innovation. I think that's that's like a very optimistic take on SEA, which certainly does exist with some some newcomer banks. What we see is that the actual practical implementation of SEA is extremely fragmented. So as Fred said, like the regulation is fairly high level, like leaves a lot of space uh, for PSPs in order to interpret it. But the bad news is that there are like six thousand banks in Europe. And so each of them is essentially interpreting the rules and implementing their own policies. And for merchants and consumers, I mean, who arguably partner with multiple banks, that's hard to track. And so you're saying that as a, as a consumer, I might have seven different ways of doing the second factor authentication. So it might be where possible, I can just use my fingerprint, but it might be that another bank, what are, what are the things might, might I be looking at as a consumer here, other than a fingerprint or a pin? Voice. Voice, okay. Yeah. Um, face recognition. Okay. So all of the biometrics. What about this? So I've heard rumors that some banks might be considering reintroducing those pin century things. Is that another thing that might happen? I don't know. I mean, this is. I mean, would that would that be applicable? Would that be strong customer authentication? That that would technically work. I mean, that certainly is not the best customer experience, <laughs> uh, but that, that does count as a as a position factor, authentication factor. Okay. So um, in terms of what's interesting that you said there is kind of allowing for innovation or not allowing for innovation, who defines strong here then? If that's, is it, is it you as a bank is, is defining strong or is it you as a as in visa defining strong? Who, who comes up with that definition? Ultimately, it's the regulators who are going to decide whether or not you're meeting the requirements. Um, but I think another party is that the issuer, the, uh, the bank that gave you your card, is also going to decide to approve or decline your transaction. So by that very nature of that decision, they're also going to decide, is the strong customer authentication that was done sufficient to meet the regs? So what is what a Visa and MasterCard? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what are the the, the, uh-huh. you know, the likes of Visa and MasterCard? I know you can only speak to Visa. Doing mm-hmm. what, what? What's your actions on this? Sure. Um, it, 
definitely requires quite a bit of education. And it's a bit different in that, um, you know, people usually look to Visa MasterCard saying, hey, you guys need to tell us exactly what to do. Um, in this case, we don't own the regulations, so we can do interpretation, we can make recommendations, but we have to say, ultimately, um, you do have to have a, a conversation with your regulator. Um, so much of what we're doing is education. So we're doing a lot of webinars, we've published a lot of papers, um, we published a 160-page guide for our stakeholders to say, in every use case, down to a field level, what do you need to be putting in? So obviously, it's a lot for the ecosystem to take in, but we're doing our best to get that education out to as many people as possible. Yeah, I agree. I think the education is really important. Um, and it is, as we've already said, uh, possible for payment service providers and banks to have their own view of how they implement SCA. But the actual requirements are hard-baked into the legislation, into PSD2, uh, and the uh, RTS on two-factor, two of three, of something I am, something I have, or something I know. So it's um, interesting that I have a note in here as well to, to mention the idea of SMS-based two-factor authentication, because that is something that I think quite a lot of people or customers certainly are familiar with. Is that relevant in this instance as well? Or is that, because I know, again, the reason I bring it up is I know that that's had some security concerns. Um, but again, that could be something that we could be seeing more of. Yeah, there, there were some heated debates about around the, the, the actual status of, of uh, SMS uh, one-type password as an authentication factor. And the current thinking is that at least for a transition period, so for a few years, this will remain a valid factor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so what I'm thinking as a consumer is that I might be getting frictional all of a sudden into things that have been quite frictionless before. Is that a concern or a possibility? It's a possibility. Um, Visa's position to date has been, because there are a number of exceptions available under the regulations, so a lot of our education has been teaching stakeholders how they can take advantage of as many of those exceptions as possible, and where we have an opportunity to introduce some new technology or some new solution, getting that out to market so people can take advantage of it. What sort of thing would be an exemption? Um, so there's an exemption for um, trusted beneficiary, which basically means that you as a consumer can say, hey, I transacted this merchant three or four times a week. I want to whitelist myself so I don't have to go through SCA every time, um, which is a consumer I like a lot. So I would I could potentially whitelist a merchant. Um, I'll have to do strong customer authentication when I enroll, but then subsequent transactions, I can maintain a simple one-click experience just like I do today. Okay, so something like Amazon that somebody's buying on a very frequent basis, I can choose that that's, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm the one to deciding that I trust them. Yep, that's okay. correct. I think what's really important, though, is the implementation, because two providers could actually choose to do the same type of SCA, but how that looks and feels to a customer, that customer journey is actually going to be crucial as to whether or not it's friction or friction-free or frictionless or positive friction, however you want <laughs> to call it. Um, and, and that's one of the things that, although it's not, you know, the focus of open banking, customer journeys and how they're implemented is something that we've been really mindful of. And one of the requirements that we have is that you are able to do bank-to-bank, um, app-to-app authentication, uh, even when you're doing SCA, mm -hmm. to make for that uh, good customer outcome, good customer journey that everybody's looking for. I mean, that's yes. I've had I've had negative experiences of that trying to use some of the aggregation services actually to link them in together, trying to use the open banking. Because I know it's not payments there, but it's the same idea. I have to go out to a mobile banking site, find a code somewhere on another app, bring it back up, go around in a circle. And the time I've finished, even 
you know, it's kind of my job to make this work. I'm bored. <laughs> so um, to your point, if that's the kind of friction we've seen in, in that, which is theoretically, you know, the, the same set of, set of rules requirements, then yes, I can see how we could get some serious friction ending up um, in these journeys. Exactly. I, th I think to state the obvious, like the main risk of SEA is to introduce friction and to reduce conversion. Like the most robust analogy that we have is India. Again, like India, 2014, 2FA was implemented. Like merchants saw a 25% drop of conversion overnight. So India was a different regulation. There were no exemptions. 3 Secure V2 was not there yet. But, you know, that's the real risk. And so as Stripe, we, 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 we personally perceive, I mean, SEA as the real-time home of PSD2. There was lots of good focus on open banking, like in the recent months, because it could transform the way people pay online. But the short-term biggest impact of PSD2 is going to be SEA. Mm -hmm. and, and what is Stripe doing about that then? It's something that I know that you've sort of started, um, you've started actioning a long time ago, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, so we, we essentially are doing three types of initiatives. The first one is building the right products in order to help merchants like introduce SEA. Um, the second type of initiative is education, like the level of awareness among online merchants is very low. We currently estimate that around a quarter of merchants wow. are aware of SEA, which is not good. <laughs> uh, and the third initiative is to engage the industry, so banks, card schemes, in order to make it work as, a, as an ecosystem. So that's the, the really interesting one you mentioned there to me is merchants. Only 25% of online merchants uh, know about this. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's worrying. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think what we've seen is that the large, particularly the global merchants, are very aware and very engaged. But we definitely do have a concern with the long tail of merchants who probably don't know what PSD2 is, don't even have a good relationship with maybe their acquirer, so they're not getting the education. Um, and so we've been trying to educate you know, everyone in the ecosystem, saying very likely in September, there are going to be a large number of mostly smaller merchants who aren't going to be prepared. And we as an industry have to have contingency plans so that we're not simply declining all those transactions and impacting all the smaller merchants because that would be bad for everybody i was going to say just picking up your point about testing which is absolutely crucial and in this new regime that we have of psd2 we have uh sca coming in we have new payment service providers that are coming into the ecosystem and um Testing is actually meant to go live for those seeking an exemption for their API on Thursday this week. Right. And that's going to be crucial because <laughs> one of the things that needs to be tested is the SCA. And that actually requires industry, industry to come together, to collaborate, to make it work well. And um, the ecosystem that we have because of how it's been sort of um, developed is with that stakeholder engagement over 2000 people participate in this sort of open banking environment with the working groups and the consultations and so that testing environment is going to be crucial going forward in helping all these participants to actually meet these obligations and to actually meet customer outcomes Yes, I mean, it's interesting, you know, I imagine everybody around this table wouldn't have a problem with it. And I'm used to Monzo authenticating my payments in, in that way. You know, that's not an unusual experience to me because, because it's, always, it's always been there. But I'm trying to think about maybe some older people who um, don't necessarily use, you know, mobile banking, but they do use online shopping. So there's a kind of, there's in, in, interesting there that there's a lot of different demographics that you would have to consider here. Um, I imagine that there's kind of a balance between, you know, providing the education, but also providing choice, like offering people different ways to authenticate should they wish to is, is is that something that's got to be considered here as well oh absolutely um it, it it's the right outcome i mean this is the lens that i think everybody around this table would agree is how this needs to be looked at it's the lens that we apply to open banking when we look at customer journeys is what is right for 
the customer in any particular circumstances. And I think, you know, banks and payment service providers are very, very alive to that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a, a sort of a, a thing lurking in the background. I mean, to come back to the merchant point, um, just that you mentioned there, Olivier, what what will they see if they haven't aren't aware of it? Will they just suddenly see a drop-off in transactions? How will it work from their perspective? So I guess, would they even know that their customers are being asked to authenticate and that's why the the, uh, the sales are dropping off? I think there are, there are two main use cases. Uh, the first one is many merchants have never built authentication in their checkout flow. For these merchants, I mean, they will see a, an overnight drop in conversion, as in payments are going to get declined. So they will certainly notice it. Uh, and the second type of merchants is merchants who have built authentication in their payment flow, but only use it sparsely today, essentially based on their own fraud or risk logic. For these merchants, essentially, they will need to consider the interplay of regulatory-driven authentication logic and custom fraud logic, and that's more friction. So if you're a merchant who's never had authentic- uh, secure authentication in your checkout flow, is it your respon- Is it my responsibility as a merchant to to build that in? Or is it responsibility of the person, you know, for example, maybe Stripe taking the payment? Or is it both? <laughs> so legally speaking, only PSPs are recognized by PSD2. Uh, but I think the, the, main, the main consideration for merchants about PSD2 and SEA is not so much compliance, it's protecting your business, protecting conversions. So we as PSPs, as Stripe, you know, we, we do provide like products in order to help you comply, but eventually merchants are the one doing, doing, doing the job in order to update their checkout flow and be, be ready. So, so the Stripe has got the, the tools there, the options to, to build them in, but you just have to actually know they're there exactly. and know you need to do it. I mean, to give you more context, we've been working for the past two years on a set of APIs and UI components in order to fulfill two main functionalities. The first one is a single integration in order to, to provide the best-in-class authentication methods. Apple Pay, Google Pay, 3 Secure 2.0. And the second capability is the ability to dynamically trigger authentication based on the trans- the characteristic of the transaction and especially in order to leverage exemptions that are, that are laid out by the regulation. And I imagine that Visa has got a similar program in place then. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and also MasterCard, anybody else out there? Um, okay, so it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, you've got solutions that you're working on. And it sounds like, Daniel, that you're kind of on top of this anyway. So there's nothing, I'm not going to see many changes as a customer? There will be a few changes. Um, we ex- suspect they'll be fairly minor. So one change is if you use your card contactlessly all day, never authenticate with your PIN, at some point you're going to have to enter your PIN in in that journey. Uh, so you won't be able to use it day after day, uh, never using your PIN. And there is a reasonable proportion of our customers that do use their, their card like that. Um, but we suspect the changes to be mostly minor. Um, the thing that's occupied kind of most of our mind is as just discussed kind of the contingency plans around it's just unrealistic to expect magically on the 14th of September thousands of merchants will have known exactly what to do and updated their checkout flow so working on flows for example where we might decline the transaction but allow the person in the app to say no that was actually me so even though the merchant hasn't supported it we able to then if they go through again with exactly the same amount and merchant it will go through in the absence of merchant actually supporting the flow um which will be a worse customer experience because it'll look a bit weird you get declined but then you have the ability to do something in your app to say no please don't decline this if i try again um but at least it means that if someone really does need to make that payment they're they're able to do so 
Yeah, I mean, actually, and I would I would expect as much of Monzo. Um, I would not expect as much of some of my other providers, certainly of whom I've had transactions, just large transactions turned down. And it, I haven't known why they've been turned down. I haven't been able to go back for it for two days. And there's a particular incident where I was trying to buy festival tickets. And that will live in my memory forevermore <laughs> um, because two days is a very long time when you're in the Glastonbury queue. Um, but so, so that's, an, that's an interesting thing as well, kind of the coming back, the customer experience. And then I guess something on you there about customer education. Like This is why you can do it again. Are you sure about this? Yes, it really is me coming through. Yeah. One, one of the interesting things that kind of like we think about is kind of why, why did we need this regulation in the first place? So like banks have an incentive to not lose money, clearly. Um, so, so kind of why, why do we need regulation to force this? And I think it was really to get us out of kind of a stalemate. So like, uh, like as, as discussed, people observe dropouts in their checkout when these authentication processes are applied as they are implemented today, which means that whilst it seems like merchants have a strong incentive to apply them because they don't then lose the money if it turns out to be fraudulent, in practice, large numbers of merchants don't because they lose more money to lost sales than they would to the fraud. Back to Olivier's point about the, the, the most pressing thing for a merchant is protecting their business. Yeah. yeah. And banks haven't really had a huge incentive to really innovate in that space and make those customer journeys really, really nice because if they do so, more merchants will use them, which makes the bank liable for the fraud. So it's kind of needed some kind of regulation to level the playing field and say, actually, we want this to be applied to every transaction, which in the short term will have a noticeable impact on the customer experience um, for, for banks that don't implement this particularly well. Um, but hopefully in the long term, we'll, we'll force that innovation because customers will leave those banks if they if they find those processes full of too much friction. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. I hadn't considered that it's a stick on everybody, except for the consumer. It's a stick <laughs> rather than a carrot for just about everybody. Um, and the consumer may accidentally end up getting beaten with the stick, you know, just by being <laughs> in the way. Um, what, what kind of other innovation do you think we can see here then? You know, is there anybody out there doing anything particularly interesting that anybody's seen? I think it might force more innovation in the fraud detection space as well. So one of the interesting parts about this regulation is that the exemptions are tied to how good you are at dealing with fraud. So if you're really bad at dealing with fraud and have a really large fraud rate, then the exemptions are really low. So there's really not much you can exempt at all. Uh, If you're really, really good at dealing with fraud and have a really low fraud rate, then you can exempt a large proportion of all of your transactions. Uh, So the idea is that the regulation kind of backs off if you're genuinely really good at doing that yourself. So it gives you kind of space to to innovate in that like pretty much however your fraud system works, if it does work, then we will let it get on with its job. That's the joy of the European regulation, actually. Seeing it that way around rather than a lot of what you see in other places is you must do it this way. Well, it's an interesting question you ask. Is it the regulation driving the innovation or is the innovation just innovating and the regulations and and then making sure that it meets the requirements of the regulation? Because interestingly, Mm -hmm. it was yesterday or today, the media has got the... um, The biometric thumbprint Yes, (laughs) the biometric thumbprint (laughs) card that I think uh, NatWest or RBS have launched. Um, And and that would be two-factor authentication. It... um, doesn't have to have the contactless limits on it because it's two-factor authentication. So it fits within the regulatory regime. I think they're only trialing it yet, so we wait and see how that pans out. But I'm sure that there's other things in the pipeline. And one assumes that it's quite a 
quick, seamless customer experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we had a debate about this in the office, actually. So a lot of the office were like, this seems completely mad. And I was like, as somebody who's about to host a panel on SCA, <laughs> I actually think it makes a lot of sense. Because if, you know, because RBS was one of the banks that did have those pin sentry machines. Now, I never banked with them. But my goodness, the number of times the Slack message would go around the office, has anybody got pin sentry? Can't get in, <laughs> can't make my payment. And then, you know, it would be in your other bag or it'd be at home and you wouldn't have the right one. And that, you know, that returning to that would never seem like a good idea. So if this is RBS's <laughs> idea of innovation and it requires me to step away from that, then I'm all, you know, we're all for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the regulation sets the rules. So ultimately, those um, stakeholders that can create the best consumer experience and have the lowest fraud, like you said, will have the best experience and they'll end up winning. So I think that really is going to, not that the innovation wasn't there before, but it's just kind of made a little more black and white saying, okay, there are some strict rules and some strict incentives for getting your fraud down. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested to pick up on your point there, Daniel, about like um, innovation in fraud reduction. Mm-hmm. All sort of things, I mean, other than the that, that sort of an, an obvious innovation in fraud reduction, if you like, but presumably there's a lot that can happen on the mm-hmm. back end here that I as a consumer might not be aware of. Yeah, there's a piece of the regulation. So as one of the factors, you can use something that's called behavioral biometrics, which tries to figure out, okay, how do you as a consumer interact with your device so that I know it's you, maybe how you're, you know, the speed that you're typing in or how quickly you click on buttons. Um, it wasn't very well defined in the regulation. But I suspect once people figure out, hey, I can do behavioral biometrics behind the scenes, and as the technology gets better, that could be the kind of factor that's really appealing because um, it could be more secure and it's really seamless to you as a consumer. Yeah, it only sort of flags it if you're all of a sudden typing with your left hand rather than Mm -hmm. your right or something like that. Mm That, that, that's an interesting point. I think the, the regulation is going to further polarize the, the payments market. Like legacy players are going to be slow to react and are going to implement authentication in a dumb, like non-user-friendly way, you know. And some new players like Monzo, Stripe, and others are going to actually see it as an opportunity and you know develop like new innovation and new ways to authenticate to further you know appeal to customers. Yeah, I saw a fascinating example of um, fingerprint authentication without a fingerprint sensor the other day where you hold your hand in front of the phone's camera and it takes a picture of your fingerprints. And this is something they do quite a lot in the Netherlands, apparently. I'd I'd never heard of it. But that kind of thing, I suppose, again, kind of builds into this and we'll see and hear more about it. So um, there's there's some interesting suggestions there. Um, what do we think um, about sort of at a more macro level? Is this going to you know change the evolution of Europe's tech industry? Are we going to see like... I'm interested here about kind of the development of an ecosystem. Are we going to see more money going to startups that specialize in, in you know, fraud prevention? Are we going to see, as, as um, Olivier was suggesting, maybe a, a dropout or a change in the number of payment service providers? Do, do we think this is going to sort of, we've talked about it a little bit, but maybe dig into it more, like sort of stimulate that kind of innovation, not necessarily on the bank side because they are quite limited to what they can do, but on the startup side, maybe? Maybe in the long term. I think we have to be realistic. Like in the short term, the main macro impact is going to be a loss of conversion and, and, and revenues. Um, I mean, accepting online payments is getting more and more complex. Like there are more regulation and technologies happening like all over the place. And so that complexity can be tough like to for merchants and PSPs altogether. In the long term, we do remain optimistic. I mean, if you take a step back, I mean, Europe has been at the forefront a pioneer for security um, technology for payments like for a while. And usually where Europe goes, like the, the world follows on that at least. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, for sure, like some start, smart entrepreneurs and startups are going to leverage like the new opportunities created. Does anybody want to take a punt on Brexit here? Is Brexit going to make any difference? <laughs> not a punt on the outcome of Brexit because, you know, <laughs> we, we, we'd be here all day. But I'm just wondering, I don't know um, if, you know, as a, as a British bank um, and a British provider, but presumably you have a lot of customers who do make purchases from Europe and overseas. 
you know, what what's the thinking around it? I don't know. If it's generally the thinking has been, you know, we're just going to keep going with the EU regulation. It makes no sense to diverge now. I mean, does anybody want to comment on that, or shall I just leave it hanging? Yeah, I mean, that broadly is our approach. Things, a few pieces of legislation might change post Brexit, maybe, but the signals that we get is that broadly speaking, it's going to be the same, and it's not productive for us to be imagining what might change because we suspect that broadly speaking it's going to look pretty similar post-Brexit if Brexit happens uh, than, than it looks like now. I should point out we're recording this on Wednesday so if Bre- <laughs> no it's Tuesday we're recording this on Tuesday if Brexit's happened by the time mm-hmm. you listen to this just pretend you never heard it. <laughs> <laughs> well I, th- I mean the direction of travel that we see from UK government from the FCA is that it is carry on as you are industry has invested a lot of time mm-hmm. and effort and money um, into implementing PSD2, um, open APIs, strong customer authentication. It's a, a whole list of things. And, uh, you know, I, I absolutely concur with the point mm-hmm. you made that the legislation that we have in Europe is world-leading. And given where we are in the UK with our open banking environment, those standards are actually world leading as well. Beyond Europe, it's global. You look at everything that's happening, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore, everywhere. Um, And so I think that there is so much to offer from everything that we have learned as an industry collaboratively together, even though there might be commercial aspects to it that it will continue and that evolution and innovation is going to continue as well. I mean, we could leave it there. Does anybody else have any other closing thoughts or comments that things we haven't touched upon perhaps that you had a a desperate burning desire to mention in in relation to this subject matter? Because as I said, I'm not an expert, so I might have missed things. So if there's anything you you think we should have included, just Mm -hmm. shout. One thing that it's been interesting to see what the effect this legislation will have um, beyond kind of the short term potentially negative impact on online retailers. So the objective of the legislation is to reduce the levels of fraud within Europe. Um, I think it's likely to happen. To what extent that happens is is questionable. But it'll be also interesting to see, does it just reduce the levels of fraud or does it just effectively up the sophistication level of the fraudsters? And are we going to move into a a territory where consumers become more liable for that fraud. So today you you have a bunch of card fraud, you get refunded. There's effectively a tax you pay on every card transaction to fund this pool of money through which you get refunded, but it's not something you as a consumer really have to think about um, and you're going to get refunded. If the only way that someone can defraud you is to convince you to do certain things which make you liable for that fraud, then you'll have a whole bunch of people which don't get defrauded and are fine, but then you might have a few people that lose a lot of money and they don't get refunded. And this is the problem we're currently seeing in authorized push payment fraud for bank transfer fraud effectively. And the industry has a real problem with how do we refund customers and effectively fund that refunding of customers. Um, And the card networks currently don't have that problem because the current system does kind of fund itself. But if we we move to a, a, a place where the only way you can commit that kind of fraud is this via these strong, strong customer authentications and merchants are no longer effectively funding the refund of fraud, then we might end up in a situation where um, we've got another problem to solve with how, how, how do we refund victims of sophisticated scams. 
That's a really excellent point. I mean, I've always been of the opinion that it doesn't matter how sophisticated the security gets, the fraudsters will get as sophisticated. <laughs> um, but this idea of, of the, the, the authorised will push payments, and we've seen this is where we've seen several examples, right, of people being convinced it's their solicitors emailing them to pay down the deposit for a house, and actually it's it's somebody who's intercepted them, that kind of thing. And those are those are huge payments as well. Yeah. Um, no that, that, that's a good point. I mean, fraudsters always find a way. Uh, <laughs> like you know, maybe they will give up on card, like card online payments. You know, in, for the for the short term, but they will find a way either in the offline world or other channels. I think the the biggest risk for the the, the industry and the retailer registry as a whole is to forget how to do proper fraud prevention uh, and to essentially rely on two FA. You know, as a as a catch all, like for all fraud. You know, which again may work in the short term, but we see it in India. And sorry to come back to India again, <laughs> but like something fascinating is happening to India. Like for the past five years, like most startups are not focused on fraud when they target the domestic market. And as soon as they go abroad, and you know they are not covered anymore by the two like requirements, like when they sell to European or American customers. I mean, they get targeted by fraudsters, and they just do not have the expertise or the tools like in-house in order to prevent that fraud without 2FA, which puts them at risk. And so I think we need to strike the balance between like 2FA and other like more flexible fraud prevention methods. And those might be something that's in the back end. We've heard a lot about the idea of machine learning, spotting exactly. random mm-hmm. transactions, that kind of thing. Be- behavioral like pattern, you know, pattern matching is essentially a detection fraud. Yeah. Yep. You always have to stay dynamic in security. Um, I will offer some closing statements just in general. Um, in general, fraud in Europe is actually lower than other regions in the world. So actually, the European um, community has done very well at managing fraud. Um, and we do see PSD2 is potentially reducing that a bit. Um, but even when you talk about tools like 3 to secure 2.0, which is sort of becoming the industry standard, there's actually quite a bit of traffic going over it. So while there is a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen in September, uh, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we're actually starting from a pretty good place relatively compared to other regions. Um, and that some of these experiences in certain markets like in the UK, we actually have some fairly low um, cart abandonment compared to other countries. So there will be pockets where it is actually being done today. Using consumer may not be as aware of it uh, because a lot of these um, stakeholders are doing, say, risk-based authentication using those machine learning models that you mentioned in order to not have to make you do something explicit as a consumer. This deal sets apart. That this economy okay, is... We need to get down yeah. to business. Yeah. 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 Clearly the pressure is the beginning. Business investment. Jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. 
Well, thank you, everybody. That's been fascinating. I certainly learned an awful lot. I hope our listeners have too. Um, that wraps up our conversation. Thank you all so much for joining me. Where can people find about more about you or some of the things you've talked about? Do you have a Twitter handle, a website? Do you want to direct us to? Uh, Olivier, I'll let you go first. Yeah, sure. So we, we did publish a couple of guides on SEA that you can find on our website, stripe.com slash guides on SEA and 3D Secure. And we are doing an in-depth webinar on SEA in the coming weeks. So feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm Olivier Godemont. I'm sure you will find my name on the podcast uh, website uh, for an invite. Um, we have some information on visa.com under PSD2, and we do also have a number of webinars coming up um, helping people digest that 150-page guide <laughs> that I mentioned coming <laughs> up in the next few weeks. Um, and so those webinar invites will be on that page. Perfect. Alexa, is there anywhere that people can get in touch with you? Oh, absolutely. So we have a lot of information about the Open Banking API standard at openbanking.org.uk. Or oh, I suppose there's a www in front of that. <laughs> it's, um, and people can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Perfect. And Daniel, how about you? Uh, I'm Daniel Chatfield on Twitter. And the Monzo blog is the best place to track all the things that Monzo are doing. Brilliant. And you can find me, as always, on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to join the discussion, find us on social media at Fintech Insiders, on find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We'd love to hear your thoughts on everything we just discussed. As usual, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you really love us, please leave us a review. That's all for this week. Goodbye. Goodbye.